0: It shocking that someone so loved could vanish without a trace, but entirely possible. It did happen, and ten years later, I still struggle. The space that once held hopes and dreams for Lauren will never heal. It is replaced by an ache fueled by the not knowing." Those were the words Charlene Spear wrote on the ten-year anniversary of the disappearance of her daughter, Lauren. When Lauren's parents dropped their daughter off at Indiana University in the fall of 2009 for the start of her freshman semester, they had felt she would be safe to learn and grow, and then she would come back home ready for the next chapter in her life. But Lauren never came back home. And to this day, 10 years later, no one has any idea where Lauren Spearer is, but her parents and many others believe that there is someone, or maybe more than one someone, who does know more than they're saying and who could help bring the Spira family some closure. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Crime Weekly. I'm Stephanie Harlow. And I'm Derek Lavasser. Okay, so today we're talking about a mysterious missing persons case. And I know that unsolved missing person cases, they're usually my favorite to cover. And I always try to get Derek to talk about them because to me, it's like a a serious mystery. And I want to like look at every little detail and try to put everything together like a puzzle to see if there's something that's been missing or that's been missed. And I mean, honestly, in, in a lot of these cases, like the people that go missing, they're somebody's kid, somebody's loved one. And I personally can't imagine anything worse as a parent to have your child vanish and then not know what happened to them for years and years. And you have to live with that every single year. It's just awful. So, if we can help by getting the word out, keeping their stories alive, keeping their names alive, it's important that we do that. And I've gotten a lot of requests on YouTube to cover Lauren Spears' case since I started YouTube. I've been getting requests, but I never really looked deeply into it until we decided to cover it on Crime Weekly. And I remember the morning after I started doing my research, Derek called me and I was like, I can't talk right now. I'm so engulfed in this case. I'm obsessed with it. So needless to say, what happened to Lauren Spear has been on my mind for several days now. And I'm actually really glad to be sitting down with Derek and getting his perspective because usually we do talk about the cases that we're covering over the week. But um, I think Derek's been super busy and he hasn't had any time for me and he's really neglected me. I mean, if we're being <laughs> honest, <laughs> but you know, it's big brother season. So Stephanie goes to the back burner. <laughs>
1: it's true. I Honestly, I've been crushed with cases for, for my actual firm, but I did have a chance to review it because I didn't, you know, to be fully transparent, I didn't know anything about this case until you mentioned it to me. So I obviously read your script and then I did a couple little searches here and there. So I have. A general idea of what it's about. I have some thoughts on it. Um, I I definitely know the specifics of her disappearance, but I think it's an interesting thing you bring up as far as these unsolved cases, because it's 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 a double-edged sword, especially in true crime, because we know, especially having a TV show, I know what gets views and what people want to hear. A lot of times they want resolution, and so we get that. But at the same time, if we're only doing cases that are solved, although they have that, you know, I wouldn't call it a happy ending, but an ending. Um, what are we really doing? Because these are cases that we've already, you know, that that really don't need any more work. Yes, there are lessons that can be learned, but it's so much more rewarding to do cases like this that are unsolved because maybe one of Lauren's family members or friends or somebody sees this or hears this or someone who has information decides based on just one thing we said to come forward. So it's a long shot, but why not take that chance? If we have this platform, why not use it to possibly help? And so that's why you got to do these. So we are going to mix it up. And although these cases are a little bit more depressing when, you know, it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of questions that have gone unanswered. It's a necessary evil. I think it's ethically responsible for us to do it. So we're going to dive in and give it our best effort. And hopefully it leads to something positive.
0: Yeah, I I agree. And, you know, like I said, just a, a really great mystery. And it's been 10 years now. The the anniversary, the 10-year anniversary of her disappearance just passed. And it's just so weird to see even like in the, you know, the 2000s decade, especially this case. Because, I mean, there was surveillance cameras everywhere. This is a college town. And, and Lauren and her friends, they they basically stayed in one little area of this, this town the whole time. Because it's the town, the, the area of the town where the kids live, like off campus and where all the bars and restaurants are. And, I mean, there is surveillance everywhere. So for someone to... Go missing in those kinds of circumstances. It's very mysterious. And so you hope that there is somebody out there that saw something or knows something,
1: yeah. and as and as a former investigator, I definitely have some insight. You know we've been hearing a lot from you guys, and we talked about maybe doing uh, a special episode where we talk about ways that you can better protect yourself. Well, I think part of what we have to do, and we've been doing it is at the end of these episodes or as we're doing it, interweave some suggestions. Um, you know, I think that's something that we do bring to the table. This is something that I've dealt with for over 17 years now in an investigation. So I have learned a lot. I have seen a lot of patterns as far as what happens with victims and some of the similarities between the situations where situations like this are are able to happen
0: Derek, and I do are think you sure you've been doing it for 17 years because you look way too young for that
1: yeah how many times do we get that
0: in the comments <laughs> yeah it makes me mad it makes me real mad now when i see him i want to like jump to your defense and i want to be like leave Derek alone <laughs> yeah and
1: i mean i don't think we've ever addressed it so i i will address it in this episode although it probably won't help at all just so you guys know the math you can look at it yourself I was a police officer at the age of 20. So I was the youngest in the history of my department. And I was there until 2017. I retired in 2017 after 13 years of service. Um, And now the reason my clock is still running is part of the reason I left It was because I opened my own private investigation and security consulting firm, so I'm a licensed and insured investigator. I've been doing it nonstop ever since. In fact, I've probably worked more cases. And the reason that I left the department was mainly because I started investigating cases throughout the country, and there's a big jurisdictional issue with that. When you're when you're sworn officer in a particular city. And you're starting to play in other people's backyards. That's that's ethically and almost professionally not the right thing to do because technically I'm not an officer there. So I made a decision to leave. So that's why we say I, I don't have quite 20 years. So you've given me credit a couple of times for 20 years. I'm getting close, but I'm not there yet. So 17 years, and I've seen a lot over the years, and I've seen a lot of individuals who have fell victim to these, you know, in these types of situations. And there is a pattern that you sometimes see. And I do think there's things that we can all do to better protect ourselves. And we got to start interweaving that, which we've kind of done a little bit in these episodes that our listeners um, are better aware of their surroundings and better protected when they go out because Lauren was no different than you or I. And so it can happen to anyone. And that's really what you have to take away from this. She's not an anomaly. This could literally happen to anyone. And we want to try to protect you guys. So we're going to make sure we do that. As we continue this Crime Weekly journey and continue to grow as a channel so that it's informative, it's educational, and, and and at the same time, we can grow tighter as a community.
0: Well, without further ado, let's talk about Lauren Spear, who she was, how she ended up at Indiana University, and what happened the night she went missing. Lauren Spear was born on January 17th, 1991, the same exact year as my little sister, which is creepy when you see these little tidbits that like make you think of somebody you know and you think about that. It's just it's kind of creepy. But she lived in Scarsdale, New York with her mother, Charlene, her father, Robert, who was an accountant, and her older sister, Rebecca. Charlene said that Lauren was every parent's dream. She was athletic, she played soccer and lacrosse in high school, she was creative, and she took fashion classes in high school, hoping to one day become a big-name fashion designer. And even though she was a tiny girl, and I mean she was tiny, she stood at just 4'11", she weighed only 95 pounds, apparently Lauren had a big heart and she was incredibly giving. Lauren was an active participant and leader at the Scarsdale Synagogue Tremont Temple, and she worked with Habitat for Humanity in New Orleans in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. So she was big into community service and, you know, getting out and doing things for communities. And she decided to attend Indiana University as, you know, the place that she would continue her education and passion for clothing design And after she graduated from high school in 2009, she enrolled at IU so she could study textiles merchandising. While at college, Lauren was also very active in the IU Jewish community and spent her spring break planting trees in Israel on account of the Jewish National Fund. So Lauren was a sophomore at IU on June 2nd, 2011. And I'm familiar with Indiana University, a.k.a. IU. That's what I'll probably call it from now on. So we don't have to keep saying Indiana University, but that's simply because I'm a college basketball fan. So, of course, I know the team, the Hoosiers, they always, well, usually have a great team, not every year. I think today, like as of today, they've won five NCAA championships, so pretty awesome they're good
1: big school Mm -hmm. the hoosiers bobby knight anyone who knows indiana knows the famous (laughs) bobby knight and he's known for he's the guy that you always see with the red sweater and he threw the chair across (laughs) the gymnasium floor (laughs) because he didn't like a call and he's he's known for his blowups but yes iu big college big college basketball school
0: yes i mean as a syracuse fan you know i'm always like ah because they they suck now and well whatever (laughs) yeah they do but well what are you gonna do you gotta be gotta be a loyal it comes
1: in waves (laughs) yeah
0: But as I found out, another thing that IU is known for is being a big time party school. And obviously a lot of colleges are considered like party schools, but (laughs) this school was rated as an A plus in the category of how good the party scene is. And this is rated by people who have like gone there or who are familiar with it. And one commenter claimed, quote, we are a drinking school with a basketball problem. (laughs) So pretty, pretty spot on. Another student said, quote, it's like the parties never stop. It's not like the police don't come around and tell people to shut up and go home. But there are people who go to bars on weeknights and start partying in the middle of the afternoon on Thursday, end quote. And in 2002, the school was given the title of number one party school in the nation in honor that the college's officials we're not super pumped about. I'm sure they want to be known for other things. And as far as I know, they, they have good academics. Everything's good there. But yes, the the basketball and the partying is what they're, they're pretty much known for. But I mean, we've both been to college, you know, like you said, what Lauren, what, what you're going to hear Lauren did this weekend, it's not really out of the norm for what I did back in my day, or I'm sure what Derek did. I mean, there are times where I look back at my college experiences and career, and I'm like, I'm I'm surprised I'm still alive because I put myself in so many stupid situations. Uh, When you're young and you're in a place where you feel comfortable, and this is, from what I can tell, it's a very small, um, tight-knit kind of community. There's like the locals, and then there's the, you know, they call them the townies, and then there's the kids that come in from school, and they all kind of stay separate. So this area where Lauren and her friends lived and where they partied, it's all like within a couple of blocks. So you start to feel safe in this area that you just are familiar with, and you go there every weekend, and you know the bartenders and you know the bouncers, and you you feel safe, and you feel safe to maybe have one too many because you know it's just like a three minute walk to your apartment; (laughs) it's right there. I mean, I've I've lived in a college town, and I'm I I have no doubt you got into trouble in school.
1: Never, never. But I but I do think what you're saying is extremely important for this specific case because I think one of the advantages. And one of the draws for IU is the topography. Like you just said, everything is kind of in close proximity. So it allows you to go out, have a few extra drinks and not have to worry about driving home. You can just walk because basically you can almost see where you live from the establishments that you're at. And that would be a draw for a lot of people because it's not all spread out in some areas where you go to university, but the local bars or whatever are 15, 20 minutes away and it creates some bigger issues. So it's interesting with this case, because although this 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 setup was conducive for keeping you safe, right, keeping you in the you know, it's a it's a populated area, it's small, short distances, you would think something like this would be less likely to happen. And you're right. But the the point of this story is no matter what the situation may be, no matter what the topography is, it can happen anywhere. And that's why you can never be too cautious. So that was what's something that really drew me to this case because i think there's a lot we can take from it
0: yeah and for lauren at this point june 2nd um it's the end of the semester you know classes are over so it's only natural that she would want to let her hair down blow off some steam after a long semester of getting up early going to classes staying up late to write papers and that was her plan on the evening of june 2nd 2011 let's have a quick word from one of our sponsors before we continue going to do something a little different this week though cuz there's there's a handful of people involved in this case that we're going to talk about and come back to many times and it's easy to get confused as like who is who especially because more than one of their names starts with a j i know for me i personally got twisted early on in my research trying to keep them straight and i kept mixing them up so i had to make like a chart and everything so i'm going to introduce all of these people to you now who they are uh their relationship to lauren before we jump into the timeline that way hopefully It's easier for you guys to keep track of who's who. And if you're watching this on YouTube, we will have visuals up as we talk about these people too. The first person I'm going to introduce you to is Jessie Wolf. Now, Jessie was Lauren's boyfriend. She'd been with him for about three years at the time she disappeared. Jesse was 22 years old, and Lauren and Jesse had met at Camp Tawanda. This is a summer camp in the mountain town of Honesdale, Pennsylvania. They call it the Poconos sounds like a very fancy summer camp. But uh, Jesse was described by those who were close to his and Lauren's relationship as a loving boyfriend. He loved Lauren so much he would never do anything to hurt her. And according to the Hoosier Times... Lauren was still on campus in June of 2011 after the semester had wrapped up because she was waiting for Jesse to finish a summer class, and then they were planning to travel back to the East Coast together because Jesse grew up in Port Washington. This is an area of Long Island, so not far from Scarsdale. Next, we have 21-year-old Jason Rosenbaum. Sometimes I'll call him Jay because that is how most people refer to him. This was another student at IU who had also known Lauren for years. In fact, they met at the same summer camp as Lauren and Jesse, in fact, Lauren met a lot of teenagers at Camp Tawanda who she would go on to be friends with and who would also go on to become IU students along with her. Jason Rosenbaum was from West Bloomfield, Michigan, and he lived at five north townhomes. This is a 22-minute walk from the IU campus, but it's like a two-minute walk from all the bars and stuff. Um, and this is a place where where other students lived. It's like campus housing, They lived there if they could afford the high rent. From what I can tell, reading especially personal um, stories from people who go to IU or who live in Bloomington, which is where IU is located, there was housing built specifically for like richer, wealthier students. And five north townhomes was one of those buildings. And the place where Lauren lived herself was another one of those buildings. So I guess IU would get like an influx of you know, kind of more well-off East Coasters from like New York and New Jersey, and they built these areas specifically for them to live in.
1: Yeah, and that's not that's not just specific to IU. I mean, it was at the school I went to. It's you see it a lot where a lot of kids live in the dorms. Um, but if you're lucky enough to have a family member that can provide you your own apartment where you're off campus, it's not too far. There are a lot of advantages to being off campus as well because campus police has a little less authority over you, although they still have control because these are buildings are designated IU buildings. But again, see no evil, hear no evil. So if you're a little bit further on the outskirts, more can occur. And I do think there's an element where when you have the apartments and your parents are paying a lot of money from for them, campus security is a little less likely to impede on your privacy because they know... Frankly, mommy and daddy got nice lawyers.
0: Yeah. You have a rich um, mom and dad who have expensive lawyers. Exactly.
1: Exactly. I'm just putting it out there. It's what it is. I lived in the dorms. Um, Even as a playing college baseball, I lived in the dorms and um, they rated our, they came to our room every day, every day. But, you know, when we wanted to really get into it, we would go to the off, one of the off-campus houses to, you know, have a good night because we knew they were less likely to show up.
0: <laughs> the good parties were always off-campus, always. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The dorm room was a no, the minute you even thought about a party, it was like, yeah you're like wait i just
0: you always have that one person on your floor too who like went to bed at seven
1: (laughs) yeah well you have the ra too that's like literally just making their living narking on people yeah that's true yeah
0: all the stories i have about my ra i hated her so (laughs) much
1: who likes their (sighs) ra ever unless unless they're drinking with you
0: which they usually don't
1: no they're usually like the the one that like is the dry person and i'm not a big drinker now but Back in the day, maybe that's why I'm not a big drinker now.
0: Because of your RA, you're scared of your RA
1: still. <laughs> no, because I, in college I was I was doing more drinking than I was uh, schoolwork. Not anymore.
0: Well, this Five North townhomes area, you know, there's other students that live there. And two doors down from Jason Rosenbaum were two other IU students: 22-year-old Corey Rossman and 21-year-old Michael Beth. Now, Corey Rossman and Michael Beth had both met Lauren for the first time just a few days before June 2nd. Apparently, they were all at the Indy 500 together. Uh, they started talking. They kind of knew the same people. They lived close to Jay Rosenbaum. Lauren knew Jay. So, you know, they they kind of got acquainted. So these are all young college kids. It's the end of the semester. They're going to have some drinks. You know, nothing out of the ordinary. What happened, though, is an ordinary night or something that should have been just another weekend, it turned into something really terrifying. And Lauren Spear completely vanished. And it does blow my mind that with all these surveillance cameras everywhere, she's seen allegedly on surveillance several, several times that night. That's what allowed law enforcement to track her movements. But after, you know, this this final walk that she allegedly takes not one surveillance camera picked her up. And it's it's always been very suspicious. And like I said, uh, the police used this surveillance camera sort of breadcrumb to track Lauren's movements around town. But they've really only released a couple pictures from the surveillance footage. Like, they have not released any footage. They haven't released other pictures or other still images, which I always thought was weird, because especially after 10 years, you'd think like, Okay, maybe release more footage of her on the camera, like show us some of the stuff that you're telling us happened, but they haven't. And the one picture that, that they released that's really standing out to everybody is this one grainy still frame from the surveillance videos in her, or the surveillance cameras in her apartment complex, right as she's leaving for the night.
1: Yeah, I don't know. You know, we talked about this. It's kind of the same thing as uh, uh, as Delphi, right? We talked about that as well, where you would assume there's more footage. Um, there's always the reason that I could I give for every case, which is you know they're trying to you know keep the control, you know keep control of what evidence they do have. Um, I would think if there was any photos, kind of like Delphi again, where it would suggest that someone in one of these frames on video were potentially a suspect, like if they had something that showed an unidentified individual with her, I truly believe that information would have been out almost immediately to say, hey, do you know this person? If you do, please come forward. Um, I know we're going to get into it. So I don't want to get so ahead. So you just
0: think it's not relevant? Like there's no reason to show it because there's nothing, there's nothing on there that they haven't told us?
1: I think it's just maybe other images of her coming and going. And I, again, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but we know there's some video that shows her... Um, not in the greatest light because she had been drinking. Um, So how is that relevant to, you know, we know that she, at least, again, I, it's tough to talk about this without jumping ahead of where you're going. And I know the story that you're going to tell, but to, but to answer your question more succinctly, I think it, I don't know if there's anything else there that's going to be super helpful because I don't think she was with anyone that they weren't able to identify already.
0: I mean, with Delphi- some of it may be
1: grainy because of night vision, nine, 2011, yeah. we do have cameras, but the question is how good are they? you know, how good is the footage?
0: Well, with with Delphi, I understand because we don't know if there's more video footage, but we know here that there is more video footage. Yes. And if it's not yes. relevant to show us the video footage and what Derek is suggesting is Lauren is, is visibly intoxicated in a lot of the yes. surveillance footage, according to police. But why even tell us that if you're not going to show the, the footage? What I think happened, my theory is one of these young men that we just talked about is going to be in this surveillance footage quite a bit. Mm. And I almost wonder if he or his lawyer was like you better not release that surveillance footage to the public because my client. Oh, I would tell in him it.
1: to go pound sand.
0: Yeah, right. Well, I mean, I but like you said, sand. rich kids with rich parents
1: can blur. You can blur them out. I mean, but I get. I. Agree, I it's possible they might um, I also think it's a respect thing too. It's like these parents are out there looking for their daughter, and you're going to see some things, and you go into detail about because the police, although they don't show it, they tell. They're very descriptive yeah. about what you can see on the video, and I and that to me, just from a human element, is, is suggests that hey, listen, guys, we're trying to be transparent with you, but you don't need a visual because not only are you going to see it, but the parents of Lauren are going to see it and we don't want them to. So we'll be transparent and tell you what's on it, but we're not going to put that the last footage of Lauren out there. And that what that's what people think about when they think of her. So I think there is a human element to it. And I think from an investigatory standpoint, there's not much in there that could you know, shine light on this case and maybe stimulate someone's mind. I think it's pretty obvious what you're seeing, which is you know, kids being kids.
0: Well, let's go over the timeline that we have. Lauren's last movements before she disappeared. It starts on the evening of June 2nd, but June 2nd is with us for a very short time because uh, some of Lauren and her friends were planning to pregame before going out to the bars that night. And according to law enforcement, Lauren had been watching an NBA finals game between the Dallas Mavericks and the Miami Heat and drinking wine with some friends at her apartment. And during this game, she received two texts from her friend, Jason Rosenbaum, asking her to come over to a party at his townhouse, which was just about two blocks away from from her apartment so now we're moving to june 3rd at around 12 30 a.m on june 3rd lauren can be seen on surveillance leaving her apartment this is the one picture that that everyone's seen of lauren from that night and it's hard to kind of put it together with the girl that we hear described later because here she looks happy and normal like her hair's done you know she looks nice she's wearing a flowy white blouse black leggings she's got this radiant smile she looks absolutely fine at this point, even though she's had a little wine. Now, reportedly, Lauren left her apartment with another young man who lived there in her apartment building, and his name was David Roan, and he was a friend and a neighbor of hers, and another IU student. And according to documents from a future civil lawsuit, Lauren and David were heading to Jason Rosenbaum's party, and when they got there, they were served several alcoholic drinks. Also present at this party were Jay Rosenbaum's neighbors and friends, Corey Rossman and Michael Beth. While they're at the party, Lauren and Corey Rossman begin spending some time together. They're talking, they're drinking, and a source later revealed that Corey had claimed he wanted to hook up with Lauren that night. Now, remember, Lauren has a boyfriend, Jesse, who isn't with her this evening, and we're going to talk about that in a second. Now, Jay Rosenbaum, whose house the party was at and who was Lauren's friend for several years, he would tell detectives later that either Lauren or David Roan had told him that night that they'd crushed up and snorted Klonopin, and they'd also done cocaine. I have a little trouble with this, recollection because it's like how do you not remember whether it was Lauren or David? I mean there's like a big difference between them. It just seems sort of subtle like oh yeah they told me this but I can't remember who said it. I almost don't think it's true and I mean clonopin is like an anti-anxiety medicine. Um, I've actually taken it before for panic attacks. It will take you out like it's like a horse tranquilizer. There's not much you can do after taking a clonopin. Um, so I'm not sure how he would have thought that they had snorted it of all things. But I mean, what do you think?
1: I have. I definitely have experienced individuals who have snorted clonopin and mixed it with cocaine or whatever. And it, <laughs> it is like, like a, the
0: opposite thing. <laughs>
1: well, I think it's a. I, you know, it definitely relaxes you Klonopin. I can, I've seen people where literally they feel like they go from being like very up and Klonopin just like kicks your ass. So I to speak, know, just it's like bad. knocks you down. It's like a, a relaxer almost. Yeah. And so it, I guess maybe the mixture kind of, you know, if people are trying to balance an upper where the, you know, a, you know, a downer, I guess you would say, although those aren't the correct terms to try to balance it out where it gives you like that perfect high. I don't know. I'm not a super, you know, right. I was in narcotics for a long time, but where I was in drugs, Klonopin was not the drug of choice so not a ton of experience but college campuses they're mixing things a little bit more again we're talking about a more affluent community a little bit more money to spend they usually mess with uh, with a little higher quality uh, drug when they when they do decide to get high
0: well, trust me, I'm not ever going to take clonopin recreationally. That sounds like the last thing that is fun. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I mean, if you guys out there have some experience with mixing these things or taking clonopin recreationally, we're, yeah, we're not no judging. shame. We hear- we're not judging you, but we want to hear what what kind of uh, reaction that would, that would cause. Um, but I mean, just in general, taking cocaine, that might pose a problem for Lauren. Because remember, she's under 100 pounds. She's this tiny little you know, sprightly girl. And she'd already been drinking heavily that night. Wine at her apartment, drinks at Jay's. And she also had a heart condition called long QT syndrome. This is a heart rhythm condition that can potentially cause fast, chaotic heartbeats, which might trigger you to faint. So typically, if you have this condition, you're probably going to want to avoid taking stimulants like cocaine because it's not yeah. good for your heart.
1: No, and I want to I talk more about that. Let's take a quick break. And then I want to dive into that a little bit. All right. So we're back for break. Not going to spend too much time on it. But when I was reading about this and long QT syndrome is a serious thing. I mean, you're on medication for it. It's not like, oh, it's a heart murmur or something, you know, which is serious as well. But this is something serious and and something that Lauren's been dealing with for a while at this point. So I don't know this girl. Um, but I find it hard to believe she wouldn't know that taking any type of narcotic, especially like a cocaine, like you said, um, that would, you know, obviously pump up the heart possibly cause you to faint. You know, it's, I don't think that's something she would normally do. We are going to get into her level of intoxication, you know, as we talk about this and maybe that kind of altered her judgment a little, but I think it's interesting what you said as far as uh, individuals not knowing who said that they decided to mix clonopin and co- cocaine, because that is, that is important because there's always that variable and we're not suggesting this, but there's always that variable where you think like, well, if it wasn't Lauren, did she even know that she was taking this? Did she snort it or was it slipped in her drink? You know, and that's a big difference. So we we have no proof of that, but I do think it's extremely important to know If Lauren was saying, because if Lauren said to someone, yeah, no, we snorted this and this, well, then clearly she was aware of it. So it's a pretty big piece of information that we don't have the answer to, but that's where we are. But this whole area of this story really bothered me because it clearly had a major impact on Lauren as the night progressed. Um, And we don't know what happened to Lauren. Could this mixture, this concoction that she took earlier in the night, have contributed to her going missing. Did something happen to her? We don't know. But and that's why I'm so glad you made sure you put this in here because it is extremely important.
0: And he, he says he doesn't remember if she said it or or David, the guy who walked over with her, said it. And it's like, I feel yes. like you would, you know, if the next day she's reported missing, then as her friend of years, you're gonna be like, oh shit, Lauren's missing. I remember yesterday or last night, just like seven hours ago that she said she was gonna you know she was snorting Klonopin and doing cocaine yeah. like that would be something that i feel would stick out so for him to be like i can't remember if it's david or lauren who said it. i don't know like maybe he was drunk too i don't know i'm not saying he's lying no, i'm sure he was yeah i'm not I'm saying sure he's lying he but even drunk i would remember whether it was like a tiny little blonde girl who told me she was snorting Klonopin or some dude that she walked over with i'm just saying
1: yep no it's it's important and and you know maybe the police know more than we know maybe they know who said it i don't know but Again, considering the background of our victim in this case, um, it doesn't, I'm assuming she wasn't doing this on a daily basis. Maybe this was something that she dabbled in once in a while and she had a good, you know, she had a good handle on it. She knew what her tolerances were. I don't know. Um, And we don't, we always make mistakes. There's a very real possibility that she knew exactly what she was doing. And this was just a a decision she decided to make, but it is important for us to point it out because if it's the other way around and someone said it to her, to them about her, then you have to ask the question, you know, did Lauren actually know what she was, was ingesting?
0: Yeah. And I, I agree. And, you know, I think that I got the impression that Lauren's boyfriend, Jesse, was usually like her protector. Like they would go out together and he would just like make sure that, you know, she was safe and she didn't drink too much and things like that. But this evening, Jesse had decided to stay in to watch game two of the NBA finals at his own off-campus apartment. He said he was texting back and forth with Lauren uh, that night and she told him she was going to bed. So the last text he sent her, it said, if you wake up, call me and we'll talk. According to a friend of the couple's, this text exchange happened right before Lauren left her apartment that night. And Jesse himself claims that he went to sleep around 2.30 in the morning, not knowing or thinking that anything was wrong. So the next day he woke up and he tried to contact Lauren. But his texts and calls went unanswered until that afternoon when someone did answer Lauren's phone, but it wasn't Lauren. It was an employee from a local club called Kilroy's Sports Bar. And Jesse was informed that Lauren had left her phone at the bar the night before. So then Jesse went to find Lauren's roommate, a young woman named Hadir Tamir. Um, He actually went into her class. And basically was like, listen, I can't find Lauren. Can you give me your key to the apartment? And so she gave Jesse the key to the apartment she shared with Lauren at the Smallwood Plaza. Jesse wanted to check the apartment to see if Lauren had come home the night before. Maybe she was just still asleep, didn't hear her phone. But when he found out she wasn't there he and some of Lauren's friends decided they needed to call her family and the police. And Lauren was reported missing at around 4.30 in the afternoon. Now, back in Scarsdale, Lauren's father got the call that his daughter was missing. And when he called her boyfriend, Jesse, who he knew, Jesse was already at the police station answering questions. So Lauren's parents started calling hospitals and clinics to see if Lauren had been admitted. And then the next day, they traveled to bloomington indiana where they would remain until the following august looking for their daughter
1: i got a question for you because i was reading your script and i think i i picked up on you know the 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 chronological order of things, but is it is it correct of me to put together that again? Not judging Lauren here at all. Um, she presented she misled her boyfriend to think she was going to sleep, so he was like, "Hey, if you wake up, text me." But in reality, she was going out for the night. Am I reading that wrong? I don't want to ever. I'm not. And again, even if that were the case, I just want to understand the players in here as far as because I was reading it and I'm like, "Oh, that sounds like." What he's saying without saying is, as far as he knew, she was going to sleep. She did he did not know that she was going out on this whole thing that night.
0: So that's possible. I think there's there's two possibilities. If what this friend of Jesse and Lauren's is saying is right, and Lauren did text Jesse saying she was going to stay in and go to bed, then I, I definitely think that she misled him. Um I think that the police probably know because they'll have his phone and they'll be able to verify, like, if he did get that text. But I don't feel that this would have been printed if that wasn't the case. You know, probably Jesse or somebody would have come forward and said, oh, I never said that. That's not true. Um, Or, you know, let's say she thought she was going to stay in and maybe she was just going to watch the game and drink some wine. And then Jay Rosenbaum's texting and blowing up her phone and, like, come over to my party. And she's like, Fine. You know, I'll come over. Maybe she wasn't planning to go out that night, but, you know, Jesse was staying in. Her boyfriend was staying in. She was bored. It's the end of the semester. You know, she wants to let loose and she's getting all these texts to come to this party. And she's like, well, screw it. I'm just going to, you know, drink my wine and go to the party, you know, kind of last minute thing that's possible, too.
1: Yeah. If you wake up, call me and we'll talk. So, you know, for me, I'm just looking at it outside, looking in. It does seem seem like uh, Lauren maybe maybe didn't want. Her, him to know she was going out. And I only say that because just, you know, being in a relationship, they were they were in a serious relationship. What was it? Three years? Yeah. Three-year relationship, very close on the same, cam- uh, you know, on the same campus. They're going to see mutual friends. Uh, you would think if his last text to her, which, you know, is what he says, which is, hey, if you wake up, call me and we'll talk. If that genuinely was the last text message he sent to her and he, he never got a response, her waking up, checking her phone and not texting him back. And then going out, you would think in most cases, your girlfriend or boyfriend would say, hey, I'm up, but I'm actually going to head out with so-and-so for a little bit. Love you. Enjoy the game. You know, so the fact that she didn't, I'm just, again, that's just my takeaway on it that Lauren was going out that night to have fun. I'm not saying she had uh, bad intentions, but she wanted to ride solo that night. She wanted to do her own thing.
0: Yeah, that's possible. And I mean, they're young, you know, they're like 20, 21 years old. No judging. Yeah, it's no like, judging. you know, that's, it's gonna, there's going to be obviously jealousy. Like you haven't gotten to that point in your relationship where you're like, Yeah, I don't care if you go out with your friends. Like, what am I worried about? We've been married for 20 years. What are you going to do? You know, they're not there in this in this relationship yet. So she probably didn't want him to know, but also knew it would get back to him. And it was one yeah. of those like ask for forgiveness instead of permission things.
1: Yeah. Well, I bring it up. You, some of you guys might be going, you know, Derek, what, what's the point? What do you care? What's what's the point? I'm asking Stephanie this and I want to make sure I have clarification because if you listen to our last episode with Sergeant Dave Sexton, I'm looking for motives here. I'm looking for reasons that people would have to want to hurt Lauren or make her disappear. Again, Not, not I'm not even getting there yet. We're going to have part three of this. It's going to be a three-parter, by the way. I don't think we told him that yet, but we have three parts to this. And the last part, we're going to go into theories. But everyone, as far as I'm concerned, is a a person of interest at this point, everyone that we're talking about. And so even though Jesse stayed inside that night and allegedly uh, did not see Lauren, when I think about the situation that evening, if it's if it's possible that Lauren was out uh, without Jesse knowing, and we're going to get into where Lauren was and who she was with and all these things. If, if Jesse got wind of this, is it possible that Jesse decided to go out later that evening? And did he run into Lauren? We don't know. But I'm assuming that if he didn't know she was out and he found out from friends that she was out with another man, um, he's not going to be in the best of the best mood. So that's why I'm asking this. That's why I think it's relevant to really dive in in on this conversation, because sometimes you can pick something up between what someone's not saying. And, and, and what he is saying is last time I spoke to her, I told her to text me. If she woke, told her to call me, if she woke up, she didn't, but clearly she wasn't asleep. That's, that's, that's how I'm kind of reading it. And I just wonder, I, you know, he's on the table as a person of interest because, you know, technically That would be a motive, wouldn't it, right?
0: Yeah, and it's funny you say that because later in the evening, Lauren does run into somebody. Who knows her boyfriend, Mm, Jesse? Exactly. And and I never even thought about it before you said that. But yeah, well, we'll talk about it when we get there. But yeah, we're
1: going to definitely get there. But I just I don't want people thinking that I'm shaming Lauren or anything like that. Everything that I ask is there's an investigatory aspect to it where it's like I don't really give a I don't really give a shit if she was telling him or not. I'm looking at not what she would do, but how someone else would react to her actions. And would that be enough to maybe hurt Lauren? That's that's the question I'm asking internally. That's what we should all be asking.
0: Well, Derek, I know you would never shame a victim and anybody who's listening to us knows you well enough. Anyone who matters knows you well enough to know that. So I don't care. But you what know they there'll say. be someone, yeah, I don't care. You know there'll be someone. <laughs>
1: no. How dare you, Derek? You know there'll be someone. So that's but that's where I'm coming from, guys. And that's where we have to come from because we don't know what happened. And so everything's a possibility.
0: So the police actually began looking for Lauren by questioning who she'd been with the night she went missing. So David Roan, he was the friend she'd walked over to Jay Rosenbaum's bombs with. And this is also kind of like it doesn't make sense because nobody ever says why David went over there, how long he stayed, when he came home. But as far as we know, he was not there for long because he was seen on surveillance cameras of the apartment building that he and Lauren lived in. He was seen re-entering the apartment building shortly after leaving with Lauren, and he did not leave the building again until the morning after at 11 a.m. So as far as, like, suspects go, who could be involved, et cetera, et cetera, probably not David Rohn. He just happened to be, like, the vehicle that got her to the party. From others at the party that night, they got more detailed information. It seems that both Lauren and Corey Rossman were visibly intoxicated while at Jay's townhouse, and at some point... They left Jay's and then they went two doors down to Corey's townhouse where his friend and roommate Michael Beth confirmed that both Corey and Lauren were very drunk. But Corey told him that he still wanted to drink some more and that he and Lauren were going to walk the short distance to Kilroy's Sports Bar for a few more drinks. Corey told Mike he wanted to have three more drinks at the bar and then he would be feeling good. It's a very specific number. Not like, I want to have a couple more drinks. Three more, like that's the goal. (laughs) That to me, that's the sign of somebody who probably does a lot of drinking because he knows exactly where three drinks is going to get him. Whereas somebody like me, you know, I drink, but I'm like, oh, I'm just going to drink until I feel like it's too much, and then I'll stop. (laughs)
1: Well, maybe he should have taken your advice because three drinks, more three more drinks, sounds based on witness testimony like that's three drinks too many.
0: Right, exactly. Because they're already (laughs) drunk at this point. They're already there. Yeah,
1: they're already there.
0: And so you know, they were at um at Jay's and just in this this area of the townhomes for just roughly about an hour. And then at 30 in the morning, Lauren and Corey, they left his townhouse and they walked from North Morton Street to Walnut Street. So like I said, this is a college town. Uh, everything's really close within walking distance. So it only took them three minutes to get there, like from five North Townhomes to uh, Chestnut Street where the bar is. It's a three-minute walk. And it's been discussed as to how Lauren was able to drink you know, at this bar considering she was underage. She was only 20. Uh, There's been speculations that she's used a fake ID or she had used a fake ID before, but it is more likely that Corey purchased these drinks for her. Um, And that is kind of what people who were at the bar that night claim. Like he was the one buying the drinks and he was bringing them to her. Now, Kilroy Sports Bar was really popular with IU college students. I would say it was Probably the most popular, especially with the Coasties. And this is the name that the locals gave the wealthier students who came to IU from New Jersey and New York. And I, you know, I think that this would certainly apply to Lauren and her friends were all from the east coast and they all came from you know somewhat well-off families even though it's got the label of like a sports bar kilroy's it's more of a club feel um they have this cool patio that's set up to look like a beach they put like sand on there and beach chairs and this is where lauren and Corey ended up and at this point it's believed lauren kicked off her shoes because the sand you know she's i think she had like flip-flops or sandals on she kicks them off because they're sitting in this sandy patio. And when the two of them left Kilroy's just 45 minutes after getting there, Lauren was barefoot, and she also did not have her phone, hence why her boyfriend Jesse got a Kilroy's employee on the phone the next day. So she leaves her phone and her shoes. At Kilroy's. They're there for under an hour. I don't know how many drinks they had. I'm assuming Corey had his three drinks. I don't know how many he bought Lauren. But while they were at the bar, Lauren was observed stumbling and needing Corey's assistance to walk. And when they left the bar, for some reason, they headed back to Lauren's apartment, which was even closer than Corey's townhouse. It's just a one minute walk from Kilroy's to where Lauren lived. And she completed this one minute walk completely in bare feet.
1: Yeah. And again, we don't have to be professional drinkers or even college students to realize you can kind of put two and two together here for someone to leave a bar um, and forget their shoes and their cell phone. Um, you're feeling pretty good. You're feeling pretty good because I don't care if it's a one minute walk or whatever. It's, it's not a comfortable walk to make. And you're forgetting what all young people never forget, which is their phone. That's like the number one thing. Right. So. At this point, it's safe to assume not only from what law enforcement has told us about the video surveillance and what it's depicted in that surveillance, but also just the fact that she's literally leaving an establishment barefoot with no phone in hand. And I don't I want to say we've all been there, maybe not to that point, but we've all been in situations where we're not thinking clearly. Um, Due to intoxication and this appears to be the situation with with Lauren and Corey. First
0: of all, I don't care how drunk I am. You'll never catch me barefoot in the damn streets. Never, not once ever. Well,
1: yeah, no. Yeah, exactly. It's no, you're definitely you're definitely in a rough spot at this point when you're, you know, walk around public. Well, I
0: was reading online. Once again, there's like all of these like students at IU who are talking about this case and like Reddit and all of that stuff. And I guess it's not uncommon (laughs) in this area to see people just stumbling around barefoot, like completely drunk because the bars are there. And then like the place where they live, it's all within like a three to five minute walk. So, yeah, I guess. I mean, I literally saw somebody say like it's not uncommon to see barefoot drunk college students just like stumbling around in the streets it reminded key phrase
1: barefoot drunk (laughs) college students it reminded me of walking around during the day going from class when when we were in
0: austin texas and um i went with my husband and sarah Turney to like this i don't know this this street it was like you act like i wasn't there no you weren't there the first time we went during the day man there was this poor girl In the street, walking in the street, like cars were beeping and stopping. She didn't have her shoes on. She was stumbling. I was like, oh, no. I walked over. I'm like, are you okay?" And then her friend came over. Her friend was drunker than she was. And Mm -hmm. I was like, where are these girls going? Like, I followed them for five minutes. And then they just they just went off down some alley. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm not following you in there, my friend. I'm I'm not following you in there. But I was like genuinely worried. But yeah, that's that. I imagine I think it was called Sixth Street or something, but. When you, when we, yeah, yeah, when we were together, it was later that night and it yep. was pretty much the same.
1: Yeah. yeah. It was really bad. Me, I, I asked, you know, we won't go too deep into it, but I was like, Stephanie, I'm out. Yeah, <laughs> I'm D- like, I Derek deserted me. Yeah. I he was like, I your husband's killed. here. I'm, yeah. No, your husband was <laughs> with you. I was like, you got this right, Adam. Perfect. I'm out. Yeah.
0: He, he bounced pretty quickly because mm. he's an old man, but, but I danced yeah, well, that you know, night, man. Oh, it's great. You
1: did. You did. <laughs>
0: Well, should we take a quick break before we talk about what happened at the apartment building? Uh, Absolutely. All right, let's do do that. We'll be right back. All right, so when we went to break, Lauren and Corey left Kilroy's sports bar. She's barefoot. They walk the very short distance to the Smallwood Plaza apartments where she lives. And Lauren and Corey can be seen entering the elevator in the lobby and then traveling up to the fifth floor. And this is where uh, Lauren's apartment was located. But outside the elevator on the fifth floor, they ran into a group of some other students and an altercation followed, which allegedly, according to law enforcement, was also caught on surveillance. So the guy that Corey had the altercation with his name was Zach Oates, and he was with two other friends. And apparently, all of these guys were friends with Jesse Wolf, Lauren's boyfriend. So, Zach claimed that when he saw Lauren and Corey get off the elevator, he could tell that she was very drunk and he offered to help her. But apparently, Corey responded, She's okay, I got it. At this point, Zach told Corey something like, You know, Just get her to bed, like get her home, at which point he claims Corey cursed at him and Zach didn't like this because allegedly he was concerned that Corey was trying to take advantage of Lauren. So he punched him in the face and this left Corey bruised and allegedly... A bit disoriented. And then Lori and, and then Lauren and Corey did something that can't, it can't really be explained. They didn't go to her apartment, which was just 100 feet away from the elevator that they had gotten off on before, you know, Corey got punched in the face. They didn't go inside so that Lauren could get a new pair of shoes or, you know, just go to bed because she was so intoxicated. They left the apartment building and headed back out into the night again. Surveillance footage from the small wood apartment's lobby shows Lauren stumbling outside of the elevator and Corey helping to steady her. About a block away, a woman who was walking by, she noticed Lauren sitting on some steps, apparently resting. But then she said Lauren tried to stand up and she fell backwards and hit her head on one of the concrete steps. So... This woman asked Lauren, you know, do you need help? And Corey responded to the woman for Lauren, saying that Lauren was fine and he would take care of her. Law enforcement claims there's more surveillance video of Lauren falling again shortly after this, and apparently this was a very bad fall. She fell um, directly on her face, and because she was drunk, she made no effort to break her fall using her arms, so her face smacked into the ground pretty hard. Yeah. Um,
1: So she's really, she's really drunk at this point. Let's double back for a second because I foreshadowed it earlier and then you, and you alluded to it. You hinted at it a little bit, you know, again, this is something that I think most of us have had some type of experience with, especially if you lived on a college campus. Here is Lauren, who's in a committed relationship with her boyfriend, Jesse, right? And unbeknownst to Jesse's friends, the elevator door opens and here's their boy's girl, drunk,
0: drunk with another guy with
1: a dude yeah. with another guy that they don't really maybe they know maybe they don't know too well clearly and, you know maybe
0: corey has got a, his like hands on her and he's like helping he's her stayed, and yeah
1: maybe he's just bracing mm-hmm. her i'm doing air mm-hmm. quotes here guy maybe he's bracing her but there's a reason he's following her back to the right. room and this is it doesn't and i'm not judging Corey in any way uh, this is a typical college guy mm, but there's I'm a reason him. i'm
0: judging him yeah she's drunk y- you know you shouldn't be doing that and he told she's people, drunk and, and he, he and told people earlier he wanted to hook up with her and then he brought yes. her to get more drinks after she was already drunk and then he brought her to her apartment. Okay. So, right. yeah, I'm so judging he's trying, her. He's trying I'm to, him. I mean, I'm judging him. He's trying to close
1: yeah. the deal. And so he's bringing her back to her apartment, presumably to try and sleep with her. His own words, right? He said it earlier in the night. Well, Jesse's friends, who are also guys. They know what he's up to. See this. Yeah. And they know exactly what he's up to. And I know you gave like a, a version of what happened. If I were to guess, it was a little more mm-hmm. like. Hey, uh, what's going on here? And Corey, not knowing that these guys are good friends of her boyfriend. By the way, we don't even know. You know, we're presuming that Corey knew Lauren even had a boyfriend. We we don't know. He knew. But either way, he knew. <laughs> you know, and it, you're probably right. Um, but Corey and I could see him saying, this like, no, no, she's good. I got this. Yeah, like, well, mind I'll get mind your her own back. business, and, guy." <laughs> and and I think you know, this kid, Zach was probably like, I don't think he was like, oh, just get her back to her room. He was probably like, oh, you got it. How do you got yeah. it? It seems like it seems like you don't got anything. It call seems her like boyfriend you got something and
0: see what you got. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's what I'm saying. Like, do you know, she's, there was more there was more of an exchange there for him just to haul off and punch mm-hmm. him. Um, And I'm sure the video surveillance probably shows uh, an exchange going on that escalated to this. Because
0: um, it doesn't again, sound right, get, like that you just be like, Oh, get her back to her room. And Corey would be like, blah, 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 blah. and then it like turns into like literally punching someone so hard that they apparently lose their memory.
1: You guys can judge me if you want. If I were back in college and I was standing at an elevator, probably had a few drinks myself, and the elevator door opens and there's my good, my good friend's girlfriend drunk off her ass with some guy I really don't know with his hands all over, her, I'm gonna be like, Lauren, what are you doing? You know, what? Are you, what's going on here? And then if the guy even opens his mouth while I'm trying to address Lauren, I'm going to say, hey, buddy, shut your mouth. I'm not talking to you. She's got a boyfriend. He's my buddy. I don't know who you are, but this right here is over. I'm taking her back to her room. You're going home, either on your head or on your feet, your choice. <laughs> and Corey probably said something like, you know, mind your business or something. And then it escalated. So I can totally see this being a situation where, At that point, Zach and his buddy said, "Uh, Corey, whatever you were thinking is going to happen, it ain't happening. So a fight ensued. And again, we talked about this a little on the phone, but I don't think anybody out there uh, who's watching this or listening to this probably isn't coming to some of the same conclusions we are about why they wouldn't continue to her apartment and there had to be a detour taken. Because clearly whatever Corey was planning um, wasn't going to work at that apartment because now... Her boyfriend was aware of it. Or so, or I mean, got, his
0: friends were. So now if you're Corey, you're thinking like, are these dudes going to text Jesse? And then I'm going to bring her in yeah. the apartment and in the middle of whatever I'm trying to do to her, her angry boyfriend. They're busts gonna show in. up. Yeah, yep.
1: they're going to show so, up or they're yeah. going to come back. So you can't go there because not only are you setting yourself up for failure, you could be in a situation where you're inside a part an apartment and there's five dudes and his boyfriend waiting for you. And the only way to get out was for you to jump down the fire escape. So you don't want to you don't want to p- put yourself into that corner. So he's like, hey, you know what? Just got my head punched in. Now, let's, you know, clearly these guys mean business. Let's go somewhere else." So this is important though. I agree. This is important not this is important because again, we're now seeing a situation where it's very plausible, especially considering Jesse was probably still up watching the game or the game had ended and he was having some drinks or whatever. It, I I would assume if my buddy saw my girlfriend out with another man and they just got into a physical altercation with that man, the next thing they're doing is calling me.
0: I'd be curious to know if that's what happened, right?
1: That's why I'm asking because we don't know. But I think it's reasonable to say that if these guys are willing to fight for Jesse, they probably gave him a text or a call and said, hey man, I don't know what's going on, but we just saw Lauren going back to the room with another dude and she's drunk. Mm -hmm. I think that's a reasonable thing for us to say. And my question would be, How did Jesse react to that? If he was awake when it
0: came through, but we're going to assume that he probably was because he said he didn't go to bed till 2.30 and this is about the time they they get to the apartment.
1: Right. And guess what? Even if he's half asleep, you get this information. You're awake. You're going to wake up. So that's why I'm asking these questions. That's why we're like, oh, Derek, why are you diving into this fight? It's very important because it could, we always talk about it, means, motive, opportunity. This would be a motive where, it would be motive enough to get your sneakers back on and go out looking for Lauren and this guy. What transpires when you meet may not be what you originally intended, but that's why we have crimes of passion, right? So just something to think about, not accusing him of anything, but these are all the scenarios we have to consider. And this, I think this fight is extremely significant because we know for a fact at this point that someone close to Jesse saw lauren with another man
0: in a, a very compromising position i would say yeah. yes and, and yes
1: and that's why i'm drilling in, drilling and in i on
0: also it. think that it's an indication to me that Corey was not just bringing lauren back to like sleep it off he wasn't bringing her back to her no. apartment to take care of her because if that was the case he would have said okay guys like i'm sorry i offended you here she is here's her key make sure she gets in bed i just want to make sure she got home safe instead he's like okay we can't stay here let's go to my place right
1: Plan B, right? No one's going to, you know, they're not going to know where I live or what apartment I'm in. So yes, I completely agree. Um, And again, I don't even, you know, that doesn't so much bother me as what it could mean for someone else if they ran into Lauren later, like a Jesse, you know, if he he had encountered her, whether she was with someone or alone at this point, and you're going to get into that, could something bad have happened? Yeah, it's possible, of course, but we'll get there for sure. We're going to get there in this episode too, as far as where we're at right now as far as Lauren's disappearance. And on the
0: way from her apartment, she's falling. And these aren't just like little falls. I mean, I've been drunk sometimes where like the next morning I'll wake up and I'll be like, oh, my toe hurts. I must have stubbed it, you know, but she's falling on her face. She's hitting her head. These are bad falls. And he continues, you know, walking her and at times helping her physically to to keep going towards his townhouse because at 2.48 a.m., Lauren and Corey are seen entering a north south alley off of 10th Street. Now, this was a narrow alleyway. Uh, There's very uneven ground, especially towards the end. So, if you like go off 10th Street, you can cut through the alley to 11th Street. But when you get closer to 11th Street, there's like a sudden incline, you know, that leads like up to the street. And I guess people who are in this alley or, you know, spectators, I'm not sure if it was people or surveillance, but they said that both Lauren and Corey were visibly drunk. They were both stumbling, and at some point in this alley, Lauren dropped her purse and her keys. So this would be her car keys, her apartment keys, like all her keys. And they would be found the next morning by someone who was on their way to work. Lauren fell in this alley several times, and at one point, Corey lifted her up and slung her over his shoulder in what they call a fireman's hold, so he could bring her the rest of the way to his townhouse, which was on the other side of that alley. So I mean he wants he wants to get her there. He's manning her back there at this point. And Yeah.
1: This and, is a problem, by the yeah, way. This is a major problem, problem for me. Um because, you know, I, I think most people can assume, you know, even though he may not have drugged her or anything like that, you if you're able to fireman's carry someone, you're clearly more sober than the person you're carrying. And at that point, legally, she's at a point where she's not capable of making her own decisions. And to even try or, or have an intention to have sex with her at that point is illegal. I and mean, you can absolutely be charged with rape because um, you don't physically or purposely have to drug someone or, or force them to drink in order to, for it to be a rape. Just knowing that the person is clearly not capable of making a rational decision and capitalizing on that is absolutely a That's crime. That's why I was judging so,
0: him for I, even going back to her apartment with her. Right. You know?
1: But I, I think I'm glad that you put this in here that he actually carried her. You might think, oh, how is that significant? It's extremely significant because if he was also equally as drunk as her, he would not be capable of standing on his own and carrying someone over their shoulder, over his shoulder. And he was. So he's, he's in a lot better shape than the person who's falling on her face and not even bracing herself. And so that's why, again, this is very significant.
0: Well, when Corey and Lauren get back to the townhouse, Corey's roommate, Michael Beth was home. Um, I guess he told the police he was like homeworking on like a term paper or something. I don't know how much I believe that. The semester was over. It's literally three o'clock in the morning. But apparently he was home working on a term paper um, or an exam. I don't know. But he said they were both very drunk. Very drunk when they got there. In fact, he thought that somebody was breaking in because I guess they were like quite loud. And Corey was so drunk that he threw up on the stairs on his way in. And all he was able to do was allow Mike to lead him to his room and put him to bed. Now, did he throw up because he was so drunk? Did he throw up because he'd gotten hit in the head so hard or a combination of both? We're not sure. But at this point... Mike is left alone with a very drunk Lauren. And this made him uncomfortable for many reasons because he, you know, he uses his head as opposed to his roommate, Corey, who's just like drunk girl. Yay. And Mike's like, this is weird. We don't really know each other that well. She's not in the most lucid mindset. Like, I probably shouldn't be alone with her in this kind of situation. And Lauren told Mike according to him, that she wanted to go back to her apartment with him and have some more drinks, but Mike didn't think that was a good idea. And when he couldn't convince her to like change her plans or crash on the couch or just go home and sleep, um, he called his neighbor and Lauren's friend, Jay Rosenbaum, and he was like, you know, take this girl. She's your friend. She's drunk. Like She needs to be taken care of. Jay Rosenbaum said that when Lauren showed up at his door, she didn't look great. She's obviously drunk, and she had a large bruise under her eye, that she most likely sustained from one of her falls earlier. But when Jay asked how she'd gotten this bruise, she told him she couldn't remember. So it shows you she's very drunk. She's so drunk that she she had these two big falls uh, as uh, on top of many other falls, but she didn't n- even remember those falls or she didn't put two and two together that those falls had caused this large bruise on her face.
1: Yeah, so now we're talking about a girl who's not only extremely intoxicated under the influence of, of allegedly narcotics. Maybe. But also could have a concussion.
0: Yeah, maybe, yeah. She hit her so, head on the cement I mean, step.
1: Yeah. So being able to consciously make her own decision, or as we're going to talk about later, walk home on her own, um, it would be. And I feel different. like
0: every single person who saw her that night would know that this is not a girl who can walk home by herself
1: she should never be unattended no they should she should never be left unattended at this point that's important to but say but
0: i mean you don't know you don't know what she was doing like i've been with friends when they're like super drunk and i'm like here you know just stay here or let me drive you home and they're like no you know they're bliddin they're like no i don't need your help and they like start throwing hands and stuff and yelling and you're like whatever <laughs> okay you go go because what are you going to do at that point like she's an adult you can't control her. You can't hold her there physically. But, um, I'm gonna talk about what happened next, But should we cut to our last break?
1: Yep, All let's right. do it
0: So Lauren gets to Jay Rosenbaum's townhouse at around three thirty in the morning. And Jay said he tried to convince Lauren to crash in his couch and, like, sleep it off, but she insisted that she wanted to go home. So, Jay made two calls for Lauren using his cell phone, apparently trying to find a ride or someone who would help her get home. Law enforcement later claimed that both calls went to friends of Lauren's, both went unanswered, and no messages were left. So we can't really be sure who made the calls, Jay on behalf of Lauren or Lauren herself using Jay's phone because she'd lost hers. One of the calls was made to David Roan, who was the guy who lived in her apartment complex and he had brought her to Jay's earlier, Um, but apparently he was probably sleeping by this time because he didn't answer the phone. They never really say who the other call was made to. I wonder if it was Jesse, considering Jay knew Jesse, knew that Jesse was Lauren's boyfriend, That is something that I've always wondered why they haven't revealed who that second phone call was to.
1: Yeah, I will say this. And again, we don't know. And when I was reading the script, I saw this. If I had to guess, I would say it was Jay that made the calls. And the only reason I would say that uh, would be because of the condition of Lauren. Um, I don't know if she would be able to even open a phone or, you know, or dial a number or even go through his contact list. So at some point, whether it was Lauren saying, hey, Jay, let me let me make these calls and Jay pressing the numbers for her. hitting the contact for her i don't know if she would have been in a condition to operate that phone at that point and 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 actually contact the right people that's the only reason why i lean towards If i had to take a guess i would say jay only because of the condition that lauren was in which we know to be true based on video footage that is unbiased objective and shows her in a condition that she's she can't even walk never mind you know, operated uh, a cell phone. However,
0: I think she would have had to have given Jay David's number. He would have had Jesse's number and known it because they were friends. But I don't, I don't recall there ever being like a serious connection between David and Jay, besides the fact that David was there with Lauren. So she would have had to have given Jay David's number. So she would have had.
1: Yeah. Or maybe he, yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Or maybe he had the numbering because they had met up one night or something. I mean, whatever it may be. But again, if we're just, you know, We don't know. And it it is important because was Lauren calling because she didn't feel comfortable with the situation. You know, I think that's a reason to bring it up. Like maybe she didn't feel comfortable being there and she wanted to get out of there. Maybe Jay wanted her to stay. We don't know. We don't know because she's gone. We haven't been able to speak. She's gone. Yeah. So Jay's Jay's the only Jay's the only information. He's the only outlet to hear this from. and. If for somehow he was involved with her disappearance he could tell us whatever he wanted so that's 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 what's unfortunate about this is we don't have another side to that story
0: well jay rosenbaum claims the last time he saw lauren she was walking away from his townhouse barefoot without her keys without her purse without her cell phone he claimed that she was at the intersection of 11th street and college ave and she was headed south on college And then it's believed that she intended to walk the short two blocks back to her apartment, but she never made it there and no one has ever seen her again. But here's the thing. Lauren's parents, um, Rob and Charlene, they definitely think that these guys know more than they're saying. And they claim that although there was multiple surveillance cameras along Lauren's route, the one she would take to go home, none of them captured her making this walk. And they've often wondered if Lauren ever left five North townhomes alive. And here's another thing that I just found out today. Apparently, there's, you know, this is a a pretty high-end, like, townhouse complex. Like we said, they're built for, like, the, the rich coasties. They've got surveillance cameras at five North townhomes. But apparently, they weren't working that night. Or there was no footage of Lauren even entering or leaving five North townhomes. So, the The standard response that I see online is that these surveillance cameras happen to be malfunctioning that night. So there's no... Yeah. Of course,
1: <laughs> always the case. But
0: is is that true? I don't know. However, if you look at it though, like I said, this townhome complex thing, it's located right in the center of everything. Like it's a three minute walk to, to Kilroy's. So there's restaurants, there's bars all over the place. There's surveillance cameras all along the route that Lauren would take home, but none of them captured her. Walking home. So even if something happened to her at some point during her her walk from Jay's townhouse to her apartment, you'd think that at least some surveillance cameras would have picked her up and then you could have a better idea of figuring out where she'd gone missing when the surveillance cameras stopped seeing her. But none of them did.
1: Yeah, this is where... This is the one of those cases where you would love to just sneak into the evidence room and have all the files for like just give me ten yes, minutes because they know is what I'm going to if I only know if I'm if I only got ten minutes that's what I'm going to because the question I would have is do we have surveillance anywhere along the route that shows her in, in close proximity to. Rossman's house, you know, like getting getting their uh, Rosenbaum's house, I should say. Right. When we when he she's close to being there, if the cameras weren't working at that location, but at least yeah, they had they showing... had the
0: surveillance cameras of her going through the alley with right. Corey, which is just right around the corner from his townhouse. So walking from her apartment to the townhouse, they have basically that whole route. They see them walking there. Mike Beth right. says they got there. Right.
1: Right. And, and Jay, by the way, hasn't denied that.
0: Jay said that she was there too. Yeah. So we can assume she got there, but there's no sign of her leaving.
1: Right. So if we have corroborating video footage to show she arrived there and and if the parents are right, because we haven't heard this from the police, but if the parents are right and we assume that they've been told things that the public hasn't. There's no evidence of her leaving or going that route. There's a couple things you can take from that. But I think the obvious thing would be is Jay telling the truth, right? Is Jay telling the truth? And clearly by them putting that out there, they don't feel that he is, as you've already said. But I, again, to be devil's advocate, this is why I brought up earlier, you know, if Jay is telling the truth for a second. Then just to say there's a blackout spot where just coincidentally the cameras hadn't picked her up yet. And someone approached her who had an axe to grind, um, or would just took advantage of a girl they saw walking by herself, completely uncap incapable yeah. of taking care of herself. It would be obvious because there is a couple right? scenarios. It would be obvious if yes. you were just
0: driving by and you saw her, a, you would know.
1: Here's an easy target. Here's an easy target. Like literally push her in the car. And I don't want to dive into theories here, but you know, there's a lot of conclusions that can be drawn from the lack of video surveillance showing her leaving, but There are multiple possibilities here. It's not as clear cut as some of the other cases we've worked where there's a small, there's such a small margin where it's like, no, this is, there's like one of two scenarios. There's a lot of things I can think of from reading up on this and even just talking about it now that could have happened. And if we find out down the road, they did occur. I would not be surprised at all if it didn't, if it didn't involve Jay at all. You know, so just something to keep open minded about. But I do think it's interesting that the parents decided to put this out there because they're probably getting upset with the fact that nothing's been done yet. They clearly feel that Jay and and you're gonna you are going to gonna go into some other stuff in part two, but there's more to this story for sure and, and it's uh it's actually actually are we getting into that part tonight? I'm trying to remember.
0: I mean we are. Because we're recording yeah, both of these are. at the same time, because we'll yeah, be in no, Nashville we, next week. But no, we're not getting into that in this part. No, we're going into part it one. part two. Yeah,
1: right. So I'll save it. I'm starting to give too much of the too much of the too much of it away. But there's a lot more to this. Obviously, that makes it even more makes you ra- raise an eyebrow even yeah. more. Yeah. Because obviously,
0: her parents aren't over here. Like, oh, you guys aren't telling the truth. You're hiding something. Just simply because Lauren wasn't seen on surveillance leaving the townhouse. Like, there's other factors for why. They think that, that these kids, these boys, these young men, whatever you want to call them. I keep wanting to say boys because they act like so, so immature, but they they were young men. I mean, they are boys. And yeah. yeah, they're young men, but they are, you know, like,
1: compared to us, they're pretty young. So Excuse me. Speak for people. yourself. Hey, listen, were you 40s <laughs>
0: younger than me? Yeah. But yeah. young at heart more, more than you.
1: Yeah. Hey, listen, I... I you know, I'm not even old enough to be a cop.
0: So. <laughs> you're not old enough to be a retired cop, Derek. Okay. <laughs> yes, yes,
1: yes. That's it. Don't, that's don't it, get sorry. it twisted. Corrected. <laughs> yeah. So you know where we stand right now. We can go over it again. But what we're gonna do on this on this series, as Stephanie just said, we are heading to Nashville next week. So what we're doing tonight, you will see us wearing the same clothing. We're not gonna change clothing for you guys. We're not doing a wardrobe change. We just this is part we're one we we go over change. the case. Yeah, no wardrobe changes on Crime Weekly yet. It's not in the budget. Um, <laughs> we are gonna. You, you just heard part one, and so it's kind of the the case itself laid out to the point where the the last person to allegedly see Lauren. Yes, away.
0: this is the last time we see her. She's walking away allegedly from Jay Rosenbaum's house. I don't know how he saw. Her get all the way to the, the one street and how she knew where she was turning. Like, what did he sit there and just stare as she walked away? If you're going to sit there and stare while she walks away, why don't you just walk her home to make sure she gets there safely? But OK, Jay, he saw her walking and then she she was going to turn or he had, was under the impression that she would turn maybe because that's the road she would take to get home. He's the last person to see her alive. This is the last time she's seen alive. And that's where we are. Right.
1: So now part two, we're going to go over what had the aftermath, what happened after, you investigation. know, the investigation, Lauren being seen alive. Now for you guys, that'll be next week. But for us, it's literally going to be in about five seconds after we finish this one. So we're going to record part two and then part three, we'll go over some things, but we're also going to start diving into our theories as far as what we think could have happened. What's the most plausible. So, oh, and there's a this lot of theories
0: too, because the yes. family, the spear family, They hired a very well-known investigation, private investigation firm. Kind of like what Derek's doing, all right? They hired, yeah. yeah. A little
1: bit like that. They
0: hired uh, Bo Deedle. He's a very well-known name. He, I guess he's kind of like this private investigator, but he's also like.
1: Way cooler name than Derek yeah, Ovassar. I don't know.
0: I don't know. Bo Deedle. I don't like it.
1: <laughs> but Bo Deedle. Bo, you won't Bo forget Deedle. it. <laughs> Bo You will I not forget I it. I
0: won't. I can even see it like written in my head because I kept messing up the I and the E when I was writing it. Like I didn't know which one came first. But they hired this firm and. The private investigators, one of them in particular, spent a lot of time with this case and he formulated from his investigation and talking to people and like spending a lot of time in Bloomington, he formulated several theories. So we will go over those in the final part and then we'll go over probably which ones we think are are the most likely.
1: Yep. We're going to get into it. We appreciate you guys checking this out. This is a very fascinating case um one that we wanted to take our time with and that's why we could have done the 3 hours we're going to do in 2 hours and just made it two parts but that's not what we do here at Crime Weekly so we we wanted to expand on every area where we could so weigh in in the comments definitely head on over to the podcast we haven't been pushing it a ton because ultimately we want you guys to go there organically but I will say this we want more people to hear this the channel's growing so if you have an opportunity please head on over to whatever podcast platform you use um, if you're listening to this, and and make sure you give us a rating. I have been seeing a lot of the comments. We appreciate it. We got about 2,500 uh, ratings on there right now, but I know we have over 50,000 listeners on almost every episode in the 30-day period. So there's a lot more of you guys out there, and we need you. We need you to grow the channel. Um, the more people we have listening to it, the the more we're able to do. We want to upgrade equipment in this in in the in our quote unquote studios. There's a lot of plans we have for the channel and we're going to need your guys help to do it. And all it really takes is just going over, leaving a a review, preferably five stars. And uh, it's going to help us move up on the algorithm, move up on the, on the charts for true crime and and help get more ears listening to this or more uh, viewers watching it. And that's what we really want. We want people not only for ourselves, but also for these cases, because the chances of finding someone who knows something or this entices them to come forward increases with the more listeners or viewers that we have.
0: Yes. And we will see you back here next week for part two. We're going deeper. I mean, we're going to see you in like five minutes, but you guys are going to see us in a week. <laughs>
1: In the same clothes. Yeah. We'll probably So don't judge us <laughs> no. next part when you see us in the same clothes like damn Stephanie and Derek are really hard. They're like recycling mm, their clothes. I don't I don't care.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but uh we will probably go live while we're in Nashville too, because we'll be together so we can go live on, yes. on Instagram and uh, do like a QA. So if you guys have questions for us, um go on to Instagram and let us know or Twitter or on the website and leave a speak pipe and just let us know what questions you have and we will uh, get together in Nashville and we'll have a couple of drinks. Nothing like, nothing like Corey Rossman had, but we'll have a couple and we'll answer your questions and we will see you. No no, no cocaine. No no, clonopin no either. Ming-ya. <laughs> <laughs> Derek will be answering the questions. Stephanie will be passed out. <laughs> yeah. We'll see you next week. Thank you for being here. Bye.
1: Bye.